Well, I do invite you then to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 17 verses. I have no intention that we will cover the first 17 verses this morning. Um, my intention is to try to cover the first seven, and I, I'm not even sure we're going to do that. So, But it's not a sprint, right? It's a, it's a marathon. <laughs> so let's uh, begin by reading the first 17 verses of Romans chapter 1 together. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if, by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, that is, that I might be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise, so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Okay, we'll stop there. Like I said, we're going to focus pretty much on the first seven verses to start with, Paul's greeting to the Church of Rome. Uh, but before we get even into even these verses, it is good to just start with a little background on the uh, book of Romans, uh, just a little bit of introduction to it. Uh, obviously, based on the, verse, the first word of the first verse, Paul, we know that Paul wrote the gospel, uh, or wrote the Rome, uh, book of Romans here. And it, this is undisputed pretty much generally throughout all of scholarship. Most people, even liberal scholars, do not dispute that Paul wrote Romans. Uh, now, you know, of course, we know who Paul is, right? Paul was a former Pharisee. He was a man trained, as, as it were, as, it, as he says in Galatians, at the feet of Gamaliel, or he says that also in, in the book of Acts. Uh, he was a Pharisee who was so zealous for his faith that he persecuted the, the fledgling church in the book of Acts. We find that out in Acts chapter 8, where he, he was there at witnessing the, the stoning of Stephen. And then in Acts chapter 9, he gets permission to go up to Damascus and persecute some Christians up there. Of course, we know what happens on the road to Damascus, right? He gets an up-close uh, personal encounter with the risen Christ that knocks him off of his donkey and onto his backside, right? And it's blinded. And then at that point, Paul then becomes a fervent uh, messenger, fervent apostle of the gospel. Now, we know God chooses 
people, right? I mean, he chooses people to do his tasks, to do his will. And when he chooses a person, he chooses a person specifically because of the the, the makeup of their personality, the makeup of their gift set. And Paul was a very zealous person. And that same zeal that he had in persecuting the church, he also applied then to the preaching of the gospel. You see this all throughout the rest of the book of Acts on his missionary journeys. You, you read this in his letters, how zealous he was for the gospel. So that personality of Paul was then used by God to further the kingdom of God. Now we also see it's... it's it's not a mystery to whom he is writing. He is writing to this church of Rome. We see this in verse 7. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Now, there's one thing about this church that we need to know. This is not a church that Paul started. Uh, unlike the church in Corinth or Galatia or Thessalonica or Philippi, Paul formed those churches. He started those churches during his missionary journeys. The church of Rome was not one of those churches. Now, the Church of Rome, we don't know how it started. We don't have a history of the Church of Rome. But what we believe, based on things that we can kind of glean from Book of Acts and and just some hypothesizing, uh, is most likely believed that the Church of Rome was started by some pilgrims who had returned from Jerusalem back to Rome. If you know uh, back in Acts 2 where you have the, the Spirit coming down upon the church on the day of Pentecost, that it was a large gathering of, of people who are of the Jewish faith, but from a lot of other countries. They represented a bunch of other countries. So there were Jews all throughout the Mediterranean world. And we know that because of the various times that countries had come in and dispersed Jews and had taken them away. And, and they had gone and settled in other areas around the Mediterranean. So they had all come to Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost, And it was at that point that the Spirit comes down, and 3,000 are converted on the day, and then many of these people would return back home. And, and it is believed that some of these were from Rome, and when they returned back to Rome, they started a church. Now, when was this written? We, again, we don't know. It doesn't have a time stamp on it. But again, based on Paul's travels, as we see in the book of Acts, and what he writes in Romans, it is believed that Paul wrote this letter uh, from Corinth around the time period of around 57 AD during his third missionary journey. And as, as I was studying this passage and looking at the background, I actually said that, saw that there are some manuscripts of the book of Romans that at the end of it actually have like a little postscript that says, written by Paul from Corinth. Now, I don't know how accurate that is, but... You know, that probably leads into some of this belief that he wrote this uh, from Corinth. So that's some of the nuts and bolts. What about the theme? What is Paul trying to get across here in the book of Romans? It's a large book. It's probably outside of Hebrews. It's the largest epistle that we have of Paul. Corinthians, First Corinthians might give it a little bit of run for its money, but, but Romans is probably the largest epistle outside of Hebrews as far as depth of content as well. Yeah. Where does this fit into all the other letters that Paul wrote? Like chronologically? Yes. Uh, Romans would be one of his earlier ones, but not his earliest ones. Um, it is believed that either Galatians, depending on the book of Galatians, there's a, there's a bit of a question as to where it was sent. Because Galatians is a, it's not a, a, like a town like Rome 
was it was an, a region and there were churches in Galatia. And it's, we don't know if he wrote to the churches in southern Galatia or the churches in northern Galatia. And depending on where he sent the letter is also dependent on when he wrote it. So I think it's like, I forget which one, but one of them, it would be an earlier date. Another one would be a little bit later. But Galatians would be considered an early letter. Uh, Thessalonica, the Thessalonian letters would be early. Um, Rome, Romans would be written around the time that he wrote Corinth, around that late 50s before, you know, and then he's, you've got his prison epistles, when he, which he wrote when he was in prison. So those would be like in the early 60s. And then his pastoral letters would be his latest letters. So probably in the middle of his ministry. Good question. Um, but as far as the theme, um, many scholars and commentators see verses 16 and 17 as being sort of a theme statement for Romans, which is why I wanted to read through those, uh, through those verses. And I'm going to read those again. In verse 16, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So in verse 16, we see that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then in verse 17, you see that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. So we see several things in these verses. First, that Romans is for the most part an exposition of the gospel. Now, that kind of ties in the fact that Paul, again, did not start this church. So he comes with this letter where he sort of gives his most, most lengthy explanation, his most lengthy discourse on the gospel, what it is, what it means for us, and how it applies to our life. So it's an exposition of the gospel as God's power to save. He also shows that the gospel is for everyone, for Jew and Greek, for Jew and Gentile, which might suggest, as you probably note from the later chapters of Romans, that there might have been some uh, tension between Jewish uh, Christians in Rome and Gentile Christians in Rome. Again, you see this in, in chapters 14 and 15 in the discussion over uh, what, you know, what meat to offer, what days to celebrate, this idea of Christian liberty. Uh, do we follow the Torah and its food laws or are we free to eat whatever we want whenever we want? Uh, so those, those issues are raised up. And when he says that the gospel is for everyone, Jew and Greek, he is, he is trying to alleviate some of this tension that may be brewing within the church of Rome by saying, look, the gospel saves everyone. It's not just for the Jew. It is for the Jew first because it is through the, the whole history of Israel leading up to the coming of Christ that you see you know, Christ coming. He is the promised Messiah. He is the Jewish Messiah. He is here to bring fulfillment to all the promises of Israel. But those promises are expanded beyond the borders of Israel to all people of all tribes, all nations, all tongues. He also says that we see here that the gospel is effective through faith. Faith is the instrument that releases the power of the gospel in the life of the believer. And then fourth and most importantly, and we'll see this, Lord willing, when we start looking at verse, uh, the last half of chapter 1 and chapters 2 and 3, this notion of revelation, this notion of how the gospel reveals God's righteousness. 
We see that in verse 17. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So the revelation of God's, you know, this idea of revealing God's righteousness, the revelation of God's righteousness is seen in judging sinners, but it's also seen in saving people through faith in the gospel. And at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see God judging sin, but we also see God's manifesting of his saving mercy through faith to, to the people who, who believe. Now let's look at, you know, just talk, you know, say a few things about, you know, the purpose or the occasion or the background of why he wrote this or the background of Romans. Many like to look at Romans as sort of what they call Paul's magnum opus or his great work. But we need to understand that Romans is not a theological treatise. It is not a systematic theology. It is a letter. It is a letter written to a group of people at a specific time. Now, it is his most full letter as far as his theology is concerned. We, we learn a lot about Paul's theology through here, but there are also many things in Romans that are left out as far as you know, going into deep theological discussions. He doesn't really go much into the person and nature of Jesus Christ at least not to the extent that he does in the book of Philippians when he talks about how Christ was equal with God but gave that up, willingly gave that up to take the form of a servant on the cross. You see that in Philippians 2. He doesn't, he doesn't talk about Christ in the same way he does in Colossians 1 where he says that you know, by him, through him, and, uh, and for him are all things made. So he doesn't talk about Christology that much. He also doesn't talk about the return of Christ, like at least not like he does in the letters of First and Second Thessalonians. So while there's a lot of theology in here, and while it's you know we have to understand this is not a theology textbook. It's not sort of Paul's systematic theology that he wrote. It's a letter to a group of people expounding a certain theme for a certain purpose. But it is his most detailed exposition of the gospel. It does express much of his theological thought. But we don't do it justice if we just treat it as a theological work divorced from its context. Now, as we said earlier, there may have been some Jew-Gentile tension in Rome, as evidenced by Paul's insistence that the gospel is for both Jew and Greek. We see more evidence of this in chapters 1 through 3 when he talks about how, you know, uh, chapter 1 he talks about how the, you know, you've got unrighteous Gentiles, and then he goes into chapter 2, talks about, well, what about you who have the law? And then in chapter 3, he says, well, we're all sinners, Jew and Greek alike. We're all guilty under God's law. Uh, we see this in chapters 9 through 11, when, when Paul talks about, you know, what about the future of Israel? You know, he just finishes chapter 8, and chapter 8 ends with that great, you know, crescendo talking about the love of God, how no one can be separated by the love of God. Death, you know, famine, nakedness, sword, none of these things can separate you from the love of God. Well, then the question might be asked, well, what about the Jew? You know, if, if we see a lot of Gentiles coming to faith in Christ here, but Jews seem to be going by the wayside. I mean, so verse, you know, chapters 9 through 11, Paul will talk about, well, let's look at the future of Israel. And of course, we mentioned this a little bit earlier, chapters 14 and 15, they the uh, debate over Christian liberty, what to eat, what not to eat, what days to celebrate, what days not to celebrate, things like that. Other things that Paul addresses in Romans, uh, obviously, since it's a treatise on the gospel, 
How is one made right with God? That's exactly what this, this letter is meant to answer. How does one come into a right relationship with God? How is the sinner to relate to a holy God? Paul answers that. How does Abraham fit? What do we learn from his life? Is Abraham just sort of a, a father figure to the Jewish people or can Gentiles learn from him as well? How does the law relate to sin and salvation? Can we gain salvation through the law? What, if not, then what good is the law? Paul addresses these things in Romans. If Gentiles are partakers of salvation through faith in Christ, then what does that mean for Israel? We thought, you know, I mean, many Jews grew up probably thinking that, you know, they were the promised, you know, they were the, the, the promised people. They were the, the covenant people, you know, and, and, and so what happens now? We see Gentiles coming. What does that mean for us? Again, Paul will answer that. All of these, again, suggest that there might have been, like I said before, some Jew-Greek or Jew-Gentile tension going on in Rome. We all, oh, sure, yeah. Um, he, he wrote the letter to the Roman church. Who's the authority of figure in the Roman church that the letter would have went to? Okay, so the question asked was, who is... Is there was there like an authority figure in the Church of Rome that the letter may have been primarily addressed to? We don't know. Um, we do know from you can kind of glean uh, things from like when Paul writes uh, his two letters to Timothy and the letter to Titus that he instructs Timothy and Titus to set up elders in the churches and deacons in the churches. So there's they already have at this point, you know, a notion that there should be some leadership structure in the church. But mostly, mostly these letters would be delivered by a messenger to the church and they would be read, you know, probably an, uh, an elder or someone in the church who is in a leadership position would probably read the letter. Uh, Romans 16 gives you a lot of names of people that were in the church at Rome, but also people that were with Paul. You know, so there's like, you know, greet these people in Rome and then these people that are with me greet you as well. So, you know, I don't know. We don't know if there was a person like one person was directed to it really is a just it's a letter to the church so it would have been you know initially just directed to everybody there though it may have been read by one individual to the church um, one last thing on purpose occasion and background uh, we do know that as we said here i think in uh, it's not in verse 13 it comes later in, in romans Paul wanted to go to Romans to have establish a relationship with them. He didn't know them. Again, he didn't start this church. But he also wanted to use Rome as a base of operations in order to expand the gospel westward to Spain. And he says that later in, in Romans like 15 or so. I don't know the exact verse. But he says, I also wish to go to Spain. And I, I would like to use your church as sort of like a launching point or a base of operations to send me on my way to Spain. So he does want to come to Rome. He does want to visit them. And of course, we know in the book of Acts, he ends up in Rome, right? But not, maybe not in the way that he would have liked. He ends up in Rome in chains, but still, he makes it to Rome. And uh, we don't know for sure if he ended up going to Spain. There's some theories that maybe after he was released, there, there's, you know, when he was in uh, Rome in prison, uh, he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. But we believe that he was released from that and then rearrested later 
Because when he was released, he wrote, we believe he wrote Timothy and Titus, and then 2 Timothy he wrote in his second imprisonment. Um, some literary features about the book of Romans. As mentioned again earlier, Romans is a letter. It contains all of the elements that you would expect to find in a letter of the first century. We've got a greeting. We've got a, a, a word of, sal- uh, of, of salutation and thanksgiving. We've got an extended body of the letter. And we've got some moral exhortations at the end. And then final greetings and a benediction. But again, what makes Romans different than other letters that Paul wrote is its length, particularly the length of its body. Paul spends essentially 11 chapters writing and detailing what the gospel is and what it means to you as a person. Um, and, And then from chapters 12 through 15, then he just gives you, now how does this apply in your life? So you've got 11 chapters of sort of doctrine, if you will. And then three chapters of, okay, now what do you do with this doctrine that I've taught you? And then, of course, Romans uh, 16 is just an extended um, farewell greeting there. But one thing that is interesting throughout, particularly in uh, chapters 4, 5, 6, and 8, and and 9, 10, and 11, all all of the doctrinal section, Paul uses a rhetorical method called the diatribe. And the diatribe, and in this method... This is where Paul sort of engages an imaginary person he's speaking to. Um, Maybe an example for that would be, let's say, if you turn to Romans 6. So at the end of Romans 5, Paul writes, let's say in Romans 5, verse 20, he says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then he starts chapter 6. Well, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So he's imagining a question that someone might raise to him. Because he had just said, where sin abounds, Grace abounds even more. He says that in in chapter 5, verse 20. So someone may say, well, okay, God likes grace. I like to sin. Seems like a match made in heaven, right? So let's just sin a lot so that grace will abound more and more. And then Paul says, well, shall we say that? He says, no, certainly not. And then he goes on and says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And then you see this again in chapter 6, verse 15. Uh, he says, you know, in, in verse 14, for sin shall have not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. And he says, well, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Again, this question that might be raised after something Paul says, this is the diatribe. This is the diatribe in action. So Paul will put forth a teaching, and then he'll anticipate a question to that teaching, and then sort of phrase the question, and then answer it as if he is speaking with somebody, even though there's really no, he's not talking to himself. He's, I don't know if he heard voices in his head. I don't know for sure, but I would imagine not. So that's the background. So now let's start looking at verses 1 through 7. So again, in verse 1, where we see Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Now, in this verse, we see three things by which Paul identifies himself. And it's interesting to note that Paul here doesn't give his testimony. 
He doesn't say, I, Paul, who was once a Pharisee and was on the way to Damascus, saw the, the risen Lord Jesus in a vision, and then I was blinded for a few days, and then I went to Damascus, and then somebody in the name of Christ laid their hands on me, and then I gained my sight, and then I started preaching the gospel, and yada, 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 and on and on and on. Paul doesn't give his testimony. He does that when he's called to defend it in, at the end of the book of Acts, but here he is trying to get across this idea of the gospel as the, the, the revelation of God's righteousness. And he, he identifies himself in three ways. First, as a servant of Christ Jesus. And then he says that he is, as a servant of Christ Jesus, he is called to be an apostle. And then as an apostle, he is set apart for the gospel of God. And that word servant... Um, I'm allowed to use Greek words, right, in Sunday school? So, right, not in sermons, but in Sunday school, I'm allowed to use Greek words, okay? The word here for servant is the Greek word doulos, which literally just means a slave. It means a slave. Now, you could probably look through any number of English translations, New King James, ESV, NIV, whatever. They're going to say servant or bond servant. Why not slave? And I think... This might be where a part of our own history might be playing against this because that word slave has negative connotations. If you say slave, it sort of maybe brings to mind, you know, the, the issues of American slavery. But that's not what doulos means. First century slavery is different than American slavery was. A doulos was a servant or a slave who oftentimes worked for pay. He was paid or she was paid. In some cases, the doulos is considered part of the family, which is why you see it in, in Ephesians and you see it in Colossians when you get that, that, those instructions for the family. And they say, husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. And then it says, slaves, obey your masters. Now, it's an interesting thing because then in our modern context, we often translate that, well, okay, you know, employees, honor your employers. And employers don't abuse your employees. And that's a good context. That's a good way to sort of contextualize that verse. But really, it's talking about household slaves. Slaves obey your masters. Masters, be kind to your slaves. We see this in the book of Philemon, where Paul writes to a guy named Philemon on behalf of a runaway slave named Onesimus. Now, Onesimus was a family doulos. He was a bond servant, a slave to this family, and he ran away. So slaves were oftentimes part of the family, and they could also buy their freedom at some point. They could actually liberate themselves if they chose to do so. Now, Paul, in calling himself a doulos or a slave, is saying here that he serves a master. He has one that he is to obey. He has one to whom he has to answer, and that person, namely, is Jesus Christ. He is a slave of Jesus Christ. Again, later on, uh, if, if, you didn't, if you can turn back to Romans 6, please. You know, later on in Romans 6, he says there are really only two types of people in the world. There are only two dispositions for, the, for, the, for a person. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God or a slave to righteousness. And that's what Paul says essentially in Romans 6, verses 15 through 23, where he says... What then shall we say? Because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that 
to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Turn back to Romans 1. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. So if you're set free from being a slave to sin, you're not autonomous. You're not, you're not a free agent, okay? You're, you're either a slave to this harsh taskmaster, sin, flesh, Satan, the world, or you're a, a slave to a taskmaster who loves you, who wants the best for you, that is God and righteousness and things like that. Now, Paul also says that he is called to be an apostle. This word called, it basically just, whenever it's used in the New Testament, it always refers to a person who has been called by God for a purpose, a godly purpose. One who is called or invited. It is used three times in our passage here in verses 1 through 7. We see it here in verse 1, called to be an apostle. Verse 6, among whom you are the called of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. It's the same word, not in English, but also in Greek. Uh, Paul was called, and he was specifically chosen and called by God for a purpose. So he was called by God to be an apostle. That word apostle, apostolos, it means someone who is an envoy, a messenger, a delegate. Again, in the New Testament, an apostle had a special meaning. It, it's used both ways. It's used in its normal sense as in a messenger. So, Mark, if I were to ask you to go and relay a message for me to someone else, you would be my apostle in that sense. But here, in the sense that Paul is called to be an apostle, is not just as a messenger or an envoy, but as a group of specially set-aside people, the apostles, to be foundational for the church, to be foundational for the gospel. These apostles were imbued by the Holy Spirit in order to work signs and miracles on behalf of Christ, on behalf of the gospel, to establish the church. And Paul was called to be an apostle of that type. In fact, he says, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that he was called to be an apostle as one who was you know, sort of like stillborn. You know, he was like the last. <laughs> he was not called in the normal way to be an apostle like Peter, James, and John. And those guys, they were, you know, Jesus' 12 disciples. And they were the ones that eventually became the initial apostles for the church. Paul was called later. So he's, he refers to himself as one who is stillborn, like a, almost insulting himself a little bit. But So he's an apostle. And then thirdly, so Paul is, 
is uh, a slave of Christ. He is called to be an apostle and he is set apart or separated to the gospel of God. And again, this idea of being set apart is uh, one of being separated uh, to, to a purpose. Again, we see this in the Old Testament where things were, you know, it, the, the, all the accoutrements of the, whole, the, the high priest and the, the Old Testament priest, some of them had the words, holy unto the Lord, like the turban for the high priest would have, holy unto the Lord on, on, the, on the gold plate on the turban, which meant that the high priest was set apart to be in the service of God. He was taken from the common people of Israel and set apart. I mean, the entire tribe of Levi was set apart to serve God. And here, Paul is set apart to serve God. I was talking to Fred a little while ago and asking him about, you know, the corn that you all raise here. And it's like, so you have some corn goes in the silo, right? And then some goes on to the ethanol plant. So, you know, the stuff that goes on to the ethanol plant is set apart for the purpose of becoming ethanol at some point. So you do that kind of separation in your own work as well. You know, some, some things are for this purpose, some things are for that purpose. And here, Paul is set apart for the gospel of God. And this goes along with his idea of his calling. And the gospel here, this word means good news, particularly the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. And what it means for us, it's not just a call to initial saving faith. It's not just a call to the forgiveness of sins, but on how Christ and his saving activity transforms all of life in history. That's what Paul is trying to get across here. This, the, he is a, a herald. He is an apostle. He has been specifically set apart to proclaim this message to the world, particularly to the Gentiles. That was his particular calling. He was set apart to be a, an apostle to the Gentiles. So that's Paul introducing himself to the Romans in verse 1. Now in verse 2, he says here, which the gospel of God, that's, you know, it's continuing that thought, separated to the gospel of God, which God promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So now here Paul expands a little bit on the gospel of God. It is a gospel that has been promised beforehand. Now, again, this, if, if you're a first century Jew, this should not have been a surprise for anyone who was raised on the scriptures, who knew the, the Old Testament scriptures and was well versed in these scriptures. We even know that there was a strong, in the first century time period, particularly around the life of Christ, a strong messianic expectation. There were many so-called Christ, small c Christs, many messiahs, small m messiahs, who had come up trying to take that mantle upon themselves, and they failed. But this messianic expectation was really high during the time of Christ. And it sort of served to distort the people's expectations of who Jesus was and what his mission would be. But this, <coughs> excuse me, this gospel was promised beforehand through God's prophets. In particular, the promises of a messianic successor to the throne of David, which he talks about David in uh, verse 3 a little bit. But here, this idea of, of the, the, the beforehand promise, we see this in some of the promises in the Old Testament. In particular, and you, don't, you can just jot these down if you want, but you don't have to turn to them. But 2 Samuel 7 has one of these promises. 
This is the Davidic covenant. It's the heart of the Davidic covenant in which God is making a covenant with David, his servant, that he's going to establish his house. Now, a little bit of the background, David wanted to build a house for God. He wanted to build a temple. And then, you know, God, through the prophet Nathan, says, David, you're not going to be the guy who's going to build my temple. He says, you, you, you've got blood on your hands. But I'll, I'll tell you what. I, I appreciate the fact that you want to build me a house, but I'm going to tell you what. I'm going to build you a house. And you're going to have an, uh, an everlasting uh, kingdom that is going to be manifested through your line, an everlasting kingdom. So in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, this is uh, God speaking to David through the prophet Nathan. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chastise him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So that was the promise of God to David to establish a kingdom. And we know that in the near term, that prophecy was fulfilled in David's own natural son, Solomon. But it is fulfilled in a more complete and consummate way through Jesus Christ who is, as verse 3 will say, we'll look when we get to that point, he was born of the seed of David. Another Old Testament prophecy that foretells the gospel of God beforehand is in Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 5, where there the prophet Isaiah says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now, Jesse was David's father, and the stem of Jesse is considered like David. And there, there shall come one that comes from the stem of Jesse, from David's earthly father. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be from the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. So there Isaiah is prophesying the coming Messiah that will come from the line of David. And again in Jeremiah chapter 23 Again, you, you don't have to turn to these. If you, you can, if you want. I love to hear the, page, uh, the sound of Bible pages turning. But in 23, Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Again, another prophecy, another, another thing in which, another way in which the gospel is promised beforehand through uh, God's prophets in verse 4 of Jeremiah 23. The prophet says, I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment 
and righteousness in the earth. Again, this promise of a Davidic king who will come and establish a throne of righteousness, one who comes from the line of David. A shepherd king, too, nonetheless. Here, you see this in John chapter 10, where Jesus Christ himself says, I am the good shepherd, calling to mind all of these shepherd motifs that you see that the king of Israel was to be. And then finally, Ezekiel. And there's more, but I'm just, you know, Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 23 and 24. Here, the prophet writes, I will establish one shepherd, again, their shepherd motif, over them, that is Israel and and, uh, Judah, and he shall feed them, my servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, he says David is going to be his uh, shepherd king, but at the point when Ezekiel is prophesying, He's prophesying to the people who are in exile long after David has already been buried and dead and buried. So this this one coming is going to be like David. He's going to be a greater David, just like Jesus Christ is from the seed of David. There are many other prophecies. We could talk about like the prophecy in Malachi or Micah 5 that talks about how the the, the Messiah will come out of Bethlehem in, in Judah, things like that. But all of these things work together to show you that the gospel was promised beforehand through the prophets. But just to kind of whet your appetite for next week, um, verse 3 talks about the content of the gospel. And verses 3 and 4, and really I do want to treat verses 3 and 4 more fully next week because these are probably the two most important verses in this opening section because it really talks about who Jesus Christ is. So we'll stop here for the moment, and then we'll pick up again next week, Lord willing, at verse 3.